Okay, in this next uh, chapter, which is called Chapter 8, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, things related to gender, gender identity, gender roles, uh, gender and uh, sex development and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> Uh, let's see, there's uh, obviously a lot to talk about here with them, uh, with sex and gender, gender identity. Um, by way of overview, um, we're, I'm going to talk a little bit about gender in general. Uh, first off, just to lay the groundwork for some of this and maybe clear up some misconceptions or at least uh, present things the way that I'm going to be talking about them. Um, and, then, um, and then we'll move into looking at uh, biological influences on determining uh, sex and gender and how much of that is biologically determined. Um, we'll then look a bit at um, uh, what are called, uh, the, sometimes called intersex conditions or disorders of sex development or differences of sexual differentiation. Uh, it goes by a few different names. Um, uh, intersex conditions are essentially uh, where there is um, uh, some inconsistency overall in the person's uh, uh, appearance of physical sex. Um, so some ambiguity of genitals or something like that. There are a number of different intersex conditions uh, that we'll talk about. And um, what um, what I want you to think about as we're talking about uh, disorder or intersex conditions is um, uh, what intersex conditions can tell us about normal processes of uh, development of gender and um, uh, and sex. Uh, and so um, so it's not just to look at the um, uh, intersex conditions themselves and what it's like for people with those, although that's important. Um, I think that um, uh, studying intersex conditions can also uh, shed some light on uh, what all of us go through as far as uh, development of gender and sex. Um, Let's see, uh, then we'll look at the uh, diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Uh, that's the um, only diagnosis in the current diagnostic system, the DSM system, that relates to gender at all, uh, really. And um, so it's kind of a diagnosis, uh, a disorder that's in a class by itself. Um, this was previous called gender previously called gender identity disorder, um, and they changed the name to gender dysphoria. Um, it is still a disorder. It is still uh, in the DSM. Um, they've broadened the um, diagnostic criteria a lot, uh, which is going to have a lot of implications for when it comes to looking at um, uh, uh, incidence and prevalence data. How common is gender dysphoria? Well, they've changed the, de the definition, and so it's going to um, be changing some of those incidence and prevalence statistics. Another change that they made in that diagnosis in the current diagnostic system is that there are some um, uh, descriptions of gender dysphoria in younger folks, in, um, uh, in children and adolescents, which those uh, diagnostic criteria were not there before. Uh, next, we'll look at um, development of gender identity, essentially looking at a um, developmental trajectory of um, uh, an individual person and what they go through at different stages or ages of life as far as issues related to their understandings of gender, uh, their own um, uh, expression of gender, uh, gender role pressure at different ages and things like that, kind of put it into a, a developmental uh, trajectory. Then we'll look at some things related to uh, gender roles uh, and gender role stereotypes, where those things came from, um, how they are handed on, in a sense, uh, and um, 
some experiences with those. So that's kind of where we're going. Um, so as I said, I wanted to talk a little bit about gender in general at first, uh, because I think that'll make some of this other stuff a bit more clear. Uh, we're going to go pretty heavy into biology in this chapter, looking at um, uh, sex differentiation uh, and how that happens in humans. Um, and also the uh, disorders of sex development or intersex conditions. Um, but I think before we do that, we should talk a little bit about what gender really is. Uh, what is it here that we're talking about? Um, and uh, so I think you all know, let's see, if you're following on my slides, I'm on slide number three now. Uh, I think you all probably know the distinction between sex and gender, that sex is uh, is on a biological um, uh, uh, plane in a sense that it's something about a person's biology, and that's generally going to be male or female. Uh, gender is more of a social construct. It's more how we think about uh, ourselves and other people with reference to maleness and femaleness. So, um, so here it may be more appropriate to use the terms masculine and feminine uh, rather than male and female. Male and female do sort of imply biological, although I'm not really good at sticking to that um, uh, convention. Um, so um, uh, I'll try to be clear. But, um, um, but um, the reason that sometimes uh, people will get confused about the distinction between sex and gender is that for, you know, the vast majority of people, those end up being the same thing, uh, that their biological sex and their uh, internal sense of their masculinity or femininity or whatever, uh, or something else, uh, is um, are consistent with one another. And so people don't necessarily need to make that distinction in understanding themselves a lot of the time. But of course, it is important to know the distinction because there are people for which, for whom those um, those are two different things. Um, uh, sex and gender may be uh, at odds with one another, and one to one degree or another. Now. Um, uh, there are a lot of things going on here with reference to a person's overall sexual identity. Um, a person's sexual identity is going to be is going to make be made up of some component parts, including their gender and including their sex, but also including other stuff too, including their um, uh, their attractions. Uh, in a sense, their sexual orientation, who they're going to be attracted to, and. <laughs> You've got mail, uh, and that's a um, that's an independent construct, right? Um, uh, I think a lot of people now are probably familiar with uh, the genderbred person. Uh, if you're not, you know, look it up on online. It's just a quick little thing. It's essentially an illustration uh, to to talk about some of those different independent constructs in people and how they all come together to make one genderbred person in a sense. Uh, but that um, sex and gender. And sexual orientation or who you're attracted to are different things. And another separate thing is um, um, sexual expression, uh, how a person presents sexually. Now, um, it seems to me that uh, for a little while, um, we were getting better as a society in getting people to understand that those are independent constructs and that they can, you know, that you can know something about a person's gender or their sex and not necessarily know about their sexual orientation, that these are again, independent constructs. Uh, 
Um, uh, with the increase in awareness of gender and gender expression and the, um, the um, many varieties of gender expression, I'm afraid that some of these um, independent constructs have gotten conflated again. So that when people, I hear people define a gender for themselves, and it doesn't just include aspects of gender, they're also including aspects of how they want to relate to other people or who they're sexually attracted to. And those are really separate constructs. And so, um, so I think a lot of the gender discussion uh, that we see in culture and society today has actually made some of that stuff more confusing. Um, rather than uh, less confusing. Um, on that note, you know, the, um, the terminology in this area is always changing. And I apologize, I'm going to use some terms incorrectly um, in this recording. And, uh, and I might not use the, the terms that you're most familiar with or most comfortable with. I'll try to be consistent um, in the way that I use terminology, but it's really hard to keep track of how people use terms. See, the thing with gender, too, is that since gender in itself is a, a subjective thing, uh, that is, only a person themselves can say what their gender is, um, uh, that opens it up to people being able to say that a lot of other things are gender, too, that psychologists would regard as aspects of personality or sexual orientation or other things like that. And so it's gotten kind of confusing uh, in that sense. Now, um, one thing uh, that is clear, and I do want to make clear, uh, is that um, if you flip to uh, chapter, I'm sorry, uh, slide number four, is that um, uh, that top continuum up there with masculine and feminine at two ends of a spectrum is not correct. That's the way that a lot of people think about masculinity and femininity. That is, that these are opposite ends of a spectrum, uh, and um, and even in talking about differences in uh, gender, people will say, well, yes, you know, you can fall at any place on this continuum. However, that's not correct either. Masculine and feminine are not opposites. Um, uh, what is more true is um, uh, what's below that on my slide, that masculinity and femininity are two separate dimensions, in a sense, two separate aspects of a person's uh, um, gender, and that for an individual person, they could be high or low in either one of those. Now, that the the um, implications of that might not be immediately obvious, but they're important. You see, if masculine and feminine are opposites, then <clears throat> then it would then the more masculine a person is, then that would also mean that the less feminine that person is, uh, and the more feminine they are, the less masculine they are. Um, and what we find is that's really not true, that people can be high in masculinity and high in femininity, or high in masculinity and low in masculinity. Essentially, a lot of different uh, combinations uh, there. This is actually a fairly easy thing to demonstrate um, scientifically, uh, and it was demonstrated um, by, let's see, uh, Sandra Bem a long time ago, um, in the 1940s or something like that. Uh, that's further down in my slides. But um, uh, So we'll come back to this idea later on that masculinity and femininity are not opposites, they are separate. And, um, and I do think a lot of people's misconceptions about gender are based on this uh, faulty assumption that masculine and feminine are opposites.
and people may start to feel like, well, I don't feel like the typical masculine person, so I must be more like the typical feminine person. And that's not necessarily so, right? Um, that um, that you don't trade off one for the other, uh, and um, and in fact. <laughs> Spoiler alert. In fact, healthy folks um, are high in both masculine and feminine traits, uh, and that um, if people are only high in one and not the other, or low in both, then both, then all of those combinations can possibly lead to problems. Now, because of this, um, uh, I've been trying in the last few years to stop saying, um, uh, to stop using the term opposite sex uh, when you talk about somebody as, oh, they're the opposite sex. Um, uh, and instead to say the other sex, um, uh, because male and female are not opposites. Uh, they're much more alike um, than most people even realize. And even when it comes down to personality characteristics, uh, when it comes down to, oh gosh, interests and aptitudes and uh, interpersonal styles, there's far more similarities in masculine folks and feminine folks, then there are differences. And so separating them out is kind of artificial, right? Um, uh, so we're not talking about opposites. We're talking about two different kinds of scales, masculine and feminine. Now, gender itself, remember that gender is a social construct related to masculinity or femininity or how much of each of those or whatever. Um, but it uh, gender itself can be broken down into two parts. Our gender identity, our inward sense of gender, how do I feel as a person, and also my presentation, uh, my outward expression. Um, the the term that seems to be most useful for this right now, or the, at least the term that seems to be in vogue, is just gender expression um, uh, or gender presentation. How does this person present uh, with regard to gender? And so notice that um, that these are also independent constructs. I may personally feel myself as being a um, masculine person or a feminine person or something else, um, uh, and I may express differently. Um, uh, and so it's possible for somebody to have a um, feminine uh, gender identity and an outward expression of uh, more maleness in their gender role. So these are independent constructs too. Um, when I say independent constructs, what I mean is that they're not necessarily related to one another and they and if you know one that doesn't tell you really anything about the other one so that somebody's uh, gender expression may appear to others to be very masculine or something like that but they might not see themselves that way and they might not um, think of themselves that way they might have an internal more feminine kind of uh, identity, or again, something else, not necessarily opposites. Um, <clears throat> all right, so um, so the idea that these are independent constructs is an important one. That um, um, This also comes to the idea that, um, you know, for a long time, people did confuse gender identity with, um, with sexual orientation. Uh, you know, I can remember when I was a kid, there were TV shows, sitcoms, where, you know, they had a gay character, a gay male character, and the um, uh, and part of the story was that he wanted to get a sex change operation so he could be with his boyfriend, which doesn't make any sense at all, right? Um, if uh, most most gay men are men, they know they're men, they like being men, they want to stay men, and they're attracted to women. It's a it's a different. Uh, kind of construct. Um, <clears throat> but people used to make that mistake a lot more. They seem to be less likely to make that mistake now um, and not um, not confuse those. But it's becoming messy again as far as um, the way people uh, combine different aspects of things.
Um, let's see. Uh, this also, by the way, um, touches on the topic that we'll talk a little bit more in the next chapter on, which is more on um, uh, sexual orientation. Um, the idea of uh, that you can tell something about a person's sex or sexual orientation or gender or anything just by looking at them uh, or seeing how they behave. Um, you know what people will call gaydar. Uh, the idea that you can tell somebody's sexual orientation. Um, gaydar isn't really a thing. Um, when they've put it to the test, people aren't really good at uh, guessing people's sexual orientation. But they often don't put it to a test themselves. They often think they know uh, about somebody. And what they're usually doing is looking at aspects of gender expression um, uh, so that more, um, so that people who are viewed to be male, who have more feminine sorts of uh, expression, are more likely to be thought of by other people as gay. And that's not necessarily, that's not necessarily so, right? Okay, um, let's see. Uh, next is moving into biology. So I'll stop this recording now and then pick up in a moment with uh, some stuff on biology and gender. All right, so looking at um, biological influences on sex and gender, if you're following my slides, we're on slide number six. Um, so let's see, in a previous chapter, uh, we looked at um, uh, how people develop in their mom's wombs, um, and we looked at uh, some of the things that happen during that, um, you know, from conception during that uh, uh, a whole prenatal period. What we didn't look at was um, differences that uh, happen in people who are going to have little girl bodies and people who are going to have little boy bodies. Uh, topic of sexual differentiation or um, sexual dimorphism in a sense. Um, so let's insert that part now into our um, uh, previous discussion about, um, uh, about how babies develop in a sense. Okay, so um, sex is uh, partially determined chromosomally. Uh, you know that um, uh, there are uh, pairs of chromosomes, and there's one pair of chromosomes uh, that, um, that are responsible for determining uh, sex. Uh, in females, females have two X chromosomes. Uh, males have an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. So what this means is that um, at the process of meiosis, that is when germ cells, eggs and sperm, are being produced inside mom and dad's body, um, uh, those um, meiosis, if you recall, ends up uh, having um, cells that, um, uh, that don't have the complete set of DNA, right? They have essentially, they have exactly half of the chromosomes from the person who produced them. Um, and that's going to be different for different sperm cells, and it's going to be different for different eggs. Uh, and, um, and each sperm cell or egg cell is going to have one sex chromosome. And then when the sperm and egg cell come together uh, to make a zygote, that's going to be the first time when those, uh, um, uh, those different sets of chromosomes come together to make the baby's new set of chromosomes. And also that's when chromosomally the sex of the offspring is going to be determined. Um, all ova, all eggs, have X chromosomes. Uh, sperm cells, exactly 50% of sperm cells have X chromosomes, and 50% of sperm cells have Y chromosomes. So in a sense, it's the, um, it's the sperm, it's which sperm uh, is going to be doing the um, uh, fertilization that determines whether or not the offspring is going to be uh, uh, chromosomally male or female. Right? Um, so 
that part happens at about the time of conception, right? Now remember that um, you know conception doesn't necessarily happen right when people have sex. Uh, it can happen uh, several days later. In fact, it usually does happen several days later. Um, but that when uh, when there is actual fertilization of an egg by a sperm, then we've got the first um, uh, uh, complement of that person's genetic code, a single complement of it in the in the zygote. And that's going to start to uh, reproduce into other cells and copy that genetic code into just about every cell of the person's body, right? So it's written in every cell, uh, just about in their um, uh, in the sex chromosomes. However, it doesn't. It, it's uh, it's several weeks before there's any physical difference in appearance between um, males and females. Um, <clears throat> Uh, and um, and essentially what's happening in the first few weeks after conception is that people are developing two different systems, one that could potentially develop into male organs and one that could potentially develop into female organs. I find this fascinating, that, um, uh, that we're developing systems that we're not even going to use uh, because we really only need one of those uh, systems, but we all start off with both of them. Um, the, uh, the gonads, a uh, very primitive set of gonads, is developing around the fifth and sixth week uh, after conception, right? Uh, so we're in the um, germinal phase, right? No. We're in the, oh gosh, I'm blanking. Anyway, um, I wish y'all were here to tell me because you would know. Uh, anyway, five, five to six weeks after conception, uh, we're developing gonads. Those gonads uh, are as yet undifferentiated. They could potentially develop into testes or ova. I'm sorry, uh, ovaries. Um, and uh, so they are essentially at this point bipotential, meaning they could go either way. At the same time, we're also developing these two separate duct systems. Everybody had both of them um, early on in development, a Wolfian duct system and a Mullerian duct system. Now, um, these are both developing. Uh, at the seventh week, um, something happens. There is a location on the Y chromosome um, called the SRY gene. And SRY stands for, oh gosh, uh, sex regulating gene of the Y chromosome or something like that. Um, and that's its only job. That's the only time during life it's ever active is in the, sec in the seventh week uh, after conception. And what it does is, if there is an SRY gene, that is, if there is a Y chromosome, um, and this person would be uh, biologic or chromosomally male, um, then that SRY gene is going to be activated in order to trigger those primitive gonads to start producing and releasing testosterone. So it's the signal uh, to specifically... Um, start producing and releasing testosterone, that's going to essentially masculinize the, sim the systems um, and lead to the degeneration of the um, Mullerian duct system, right? Um, and so uh, uh, over the next few weeks, that Mullerian duct system is going to degenerate uh, and the Wolfian duct system is going to develop into male structures. If that SRY gene is not present, that is, if the person is chromosomally female, XX chromosomes, 
um, then, um, then that's not going to cause the production and release of testosterone. And in the absence of the production and release of testosterone, what's going to happen then is the Wolfian duct system is going to degenerate and go away, and the Mullerian duct system is going to develop uh, and mature into female structures. Now, uh, if you look at the, um, the diagram on, uh, on slide number seven, you see essentially some of that, um, some of that differentiation. Now, uh, I've tried to, um, I tried to, uh, emphasize when we were looking at, um, sexual anatomy and physiology about, uh, analogous, uh, structures in males and females and how, you know, we can talk about these things as being in some way analogous to one another, like testes are analogous to, um, ovaries. Uh, and things like that, right? Um, part of the reason why that's useful is because that allows us to see how those different structures develop and differentiate it into male and female structures. Sometimes when people think about or look at pictures of male and female genitals, they think, What's, what do they got in common? How can they be the same? How can they be derived from the same tissue? You know, I'm just not seeing it. Well, um, uh, I actually have, uh, have a better picture of essentially uh, external development, but I don't have it electronically. It's in a book that's in my office that I would have brought to show you. But uh, anyway, it shows some of this from the outside. Um, what I have in my slideshow there is some of the organs from the inside. Notice that um, at the top, it's marked as undifferentiated, that the person has both Wolfian and Malarian duct systems, and the, um, the uh, primitive gonads are internal. Uh, at that point of di uh, differentiation at week seven of gestation, um, they're going to start to uh, develop differently. Uh, so that um, if someone someone who's going to be developing more female structures, the Wolfian ducts degenerate, uh, and develops female structures. In somebody who's going to develop more male structures, uh, the Mullerian ducts degenerate and uh, the, testi the testes move um, and uh, create more of the um, uh, male structures. Now, you may have heard people say at one point or another that, um, that you know, uh, people will say stuff like all babies or all people start off as female and um, and then something happens and some of them become male or something like that. Um, that's as you can see, that's not really exactly true. There's a, um, what we all more accurately, we all start off as bipotential. That is we have the ability, our bodies have the ability to develop fully functioning male structures or to develop fully functioning female structures. We are, literally by potential. Um, uh, the, um, but it does seem that if something doesn't happen, uh, then the um, factory setting or the default setting, I guess, would be to develop female structures. So if there isn't this surge of testosterone at week seven of gestation, then yes, uh, essentially nature has programmed uh, us to develop female structures. So I guess that's sort of where that idea comes from, that we all start off as female, but but it's, it's missing some of the um, uh, some of the nuance there that um, that essentially we all start off as having the possibility of both. Now that um, that exposure to uh, testosterone at about the seventh week and uh, you know in the next few weeks of gestation is going to be important uh, when it comes to uh, in a little while when we look at some of the different possibilities as far as intersex conditions and things like that so we can see that see how 
uh, different levels of sex hormones, even while in utero, cause differences in the development of the genitals, but also quite possibly the brain. Which brings me to the next slide. Let's see. Yeah, I think um, we'll do this slide and then I'll um, stop this recording. Um, let's see. So uh, I'm on slide eight now. Um, biological influences on sex and gender. But we look at brain differences. Um, <clears throat> is there a difference physically between male and female brains? Um, the, the main answer to that question is no, there's not really much difference. There are some differences, but they're small, and they're subtle. But it turns out they might be small and subtle, but still be important. Okay. Um, uh, here's the thing. Um, on inspection, on looking at brains, uh, there doesn't seem to be any real apparent difference in male and female brain, stru uh, brain structures at birth. Um, uh, soon after birth, there is some differentiation, particularly in the hypothalamus. Now, the hypothalamus is a pretty small part of the brain. Hypothalamus is about the size of a kidney bean, or a red bean, we'd call it around here, uh, at, at my house, I mean. Uh, and, um, you know, it's a pretty small part, but it's got a lot of important regulatory functions. We've already seen how the hypothalamus, you know, is the link between the brain and the, and the uh, endocrine system. Uh, so controlling everything having to do with hormones, including the sex hormones, but including other hormones too. And so the hypothalamus is going to be in charge of starting puberty, regulating the menstrual cycle, some things related to uh, sexual appetite, and drive, but it's also going to be in control of some other regulatory things like core body temperature and um, uh, even appetite and uh, hunger and eating behaviors and satiety, that is when we uh, stop being hungry and stop eating. Um, so there's a lot of important stuff happening in the hypothalamus. So even though it's small, small differences in hypothalamus may make very big differences um, in people. Um, the only other really robust uh, finding that's reported in sex differences as far as brain structures is that by the time uh, people are adults, um, male brains tend, adult male brains tend to be more lateralized than female brains. Um, uh, there's some more recent studies that are calling some of this into question, but I'm still going to report this because this may be important. Um, uh, let's see. And that's that, um, essentially, uh, what that means is that, uh, you've heard things about the uh, two sides of the brain being responsible for different kinds of activities or functions. And most of that, um, most of that is a myth. Um, really your brain is going to be, uh, you're going to be using all of your brain to do a lot of different things. And, um, talking about, um, people as being dominant or, uh, people as being dominated by one half of their brain or something like that is just sort of, uh, it's myth. It's kind of overblown. Um, but um, uh, for most functions, we're using both sides of our brains. Um, when it comes to lateralization, what that means is that there are some functions that would be only or predominantly represented on one side of the brain and not so much on the other. Uh, and you're more likely to find lateralization in male brains than female brains. Um, people have, you know, talked about possible implications of this. Uh, you know, uh, there's some research to indicate that, um, you know, males tend to prefer tasks where they are, uh, tend to be able to focus on one particular task, uh, whereas females are more likely to be 
maybe even be better at doing more than one thing at once, uh, that they can spread their brain resources a little bit differently. There's also some speculation that this may implicate recovery from brain injury in that um, uh, since male brains may be more lateralized, they may have a harder time healing uh, than female brains, uh, that um, if there's a part of the male brain that's damaged, it's going to be harder for that brain to recover uh, and reassign that function to somewhere else than a female brain, which may be already more lateralized. Uh, you know, none of that is definite. Um, it's kind of hard to compare damage to people's brains. Uh, you know, how can you say it's exact, you know, that the, the same kind of lesion would have the uh, have different kinds of effects on different folks, but um, uh, but there are some things that would seem to go along with that. When it comes right down to it, though, male and female brains are much more similar to one another than they are different. Um, uh, we'll look later on in this chapter at um, at things related to personality and aptitudes and interests and you know interpersonal style and stuff like that, and um, and none of that really seems to come out. In, um, in studies of brain differences uh, as being robust kinds of differences between male and female brains. Uh, the differences are small and largely inconsequential. However, there may be some differences. This, um, uh, the fact that there may be small differences uh, may be an important one, because later on when we look at, um, at things related to gender identity, and in particular um, the idea of gender dysphoria, that um, a lot of times when people have gender dysphoria, they'll talk about it in terms of male and female brains. They'll say, you know, I was born with this male body, and yet I'm sure that I have a female brain. Um, and they'll talk about it in terms of it feels like there's been a mistake made somewhere. This just doesn't match up right. And um, and so, um, so, so the differences in male and female brains may actually be some of the underlying um, uh, influences on gender dysphoria. Uh, and since they're subtle, it, that might be why it's taken us a long time to find them in the, find those differences in the brain. Okay, if we move next to intersex conditions or disorders of sexual development uh, that are hormonal in nature, hormonal in cause, um, uh, here we've got, um, well, I guess we could say we've got two big groups of them, um, of these conditions uh, that are either labeled as hermaphroditism or pseudo-hermaphroditism. So first off, um, hermaphroditism or what may be called true hermaphroditism to um, differentiate it from uh, forms of pseudo-hermaphroditism. Uh, in true hermaphroditism is pretty rare, uh, one in 65,000 live births. Um, and what happens here is that, um, that those primitive rudimentary gonads uh, don't differentiate. Um, uh, they don't differentiate into male or female. They don't differentiate into testes or ovaries. And so what often happens is that both male and female reproductive systems develop. So in true hermaphroditism, a person has at least most parts of both male and female structures, right? Um, now, uh, this is more more likely to happen in somebody who is genetically female. So, so notice that somebody with true hermaphroditism is very likely going to have two X chromosomes, XX, uh, in, um, uh, in genotype. Uh, so genetically female. Um, 
and um, an internal and external sex presentation are going to be different. Uh, so that um, internal are liable to have some um, uh, some female structures, including one ovary and a fallopian tube uh, on one side, a testicle, usually internal testicle, and a vas deferens on the other side. And so essentially those um, uh, uh, early structures, the malarian duct system um, and the... Um, um, uh, 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 I'm blocking on the name, uh, Wolfian <laughs> duct system, um, uh, don't fully degenerate, right? Uh, and don't differentiate. So, so it's often that on one side of the body, um, right to left, essentially one side, uh, person's going to have more female structures and more male structures on the other internally. Externally, the appearance is liable to be ambiguous. Um, uh, the, um, there's going to be something that would be recognized as a phallus uh, that may be essentially uh, somewhere between a penis and an enlarged clitoris. Uh, the um, uh, it's usually not it's it shouldn't it's probably not right to call it a penis because uh, the um, the urethra is not going to pass through it. Uh, so the per so the urethra is going to um, uh, generally either um, come out of the base of that phallus or even in the perineum. Um, uh, and so, um, but it, but it looks like it might be a penis. And so at birth, sometimes people are liable to say, oh, it's got a penis. It must be a boy. Um, however, at puberty, uh, the person's often going to start to develop breasts and also begin to menstruate. Uh, she's liable to have um, enlarged labia that, again, that here may be confused or mistaken for a scrotum. Um, uh, but, um, but at uh, puberty, she's liable to start menstruating. Um, however, um, most people with uh, true hermaphroditism are, um, are infertile, not able to reproduce. Uh, let's see, on the next slide, um, slide 13, uh, there's a photograph for you. I think maybe that's in your textbook. Maybe I lifted that from your textbook. Um, but um, but essentially what that's showing is external uh, features of a person with true hermaphroditism. So notice that this is a person who is XX in genotype, uh, female chromosomally genotype, uh, has one ovary and one testicle, uh, and has um, lived as a male, seen themselves as male, um, uh, and lived as male. Um, but you can see breast development there, and this person probably does menstruate too. So, um, um, all right. Let's see the um, other kinds of uh, intersex conditions that are more common. Uh, collectively, could be called pseudo hermaphroditism. Uh, pseudo meaning I don't know, false or fake or not quite or something like that. Uh, pseudo hermaphroditism. And there's a few possibilities here. Um, I think we'll look at uh, three different examples uh, of um, uh, types of pseudo-hermaphroditism. Now, in, um, in these uh, intersex conditions, a person is going to have um, uh, gonads that are consistent with their chromosomal sex. So notice we've got a person with either X and Y chromosomes, who we might call genotypically male, and they're going to have testicles. So far, that's consistent, right? Uh, or we're going to have a person who is genotypically female, XX chromosomes, chromosomally female, um, and with ovaries. So far, that's consistent with what we see in the vast majority of people, 
right? Um, the difference, though, is that um, in folks with uh, different forms of pseudohermaphroditism, uh, the external genitals are liable to be ambiguous, um, that is, having some aspects of what we might expect in male external genitals and some aspects of what we might expect in female external genitals, or they may be other sex, so that it may be that uh, we're talking about a person who is XY with testicles uh, who has um, female uh, genital structures on external appearance, or somebody who's XX with ovaries who has male uh, external structures. All right. Um, so notice that these are not these conditions that are not chromosomal. Um, they're tied to um, uh, hormonal uh, influences. Right. All right. So a uh, few possibilities here: um, adrenogenital syndrome, um, uh, androgen insensitivity syndrome and uh, DHT deficiency. Uh, if we go to um, adrenogenital syndrome, which uh, I'm on slide 15 now, uh, let's see, um, adrenogenital syndrome is essentially where uh, we've got somebody who is chromosomally female, XX, and she develops ovaries. Um, but early in her prenatal development, for some reason or another, her adrenal glands start to overproduce testosterone. Now, remember that in, uh, in girls and women, um, a lot of the testosterone that's going to be produced is going to be from the adrenal glands and not the ovaries. Um, and so here is essentially these adrenal glands, which are normally going to produce some testosterone, are producing higher levels of testosterone. And that makes some systematic changes in um, the person's body and even perhaps her brain. Okay, so that um, uh, girls born with adrenogenital syndrome uh, are liable to have an enlarged clitoris um, and enlarged labia. So here again, at first glance, it might be uh, mistaken for uh, a baby penis and scrotum, and so might be initially misidentified as um, uh, as male um, because of the size of the clitoris. Um, uh, however, um, most um, most people with adrenogenital syndrome are uh, uh, recognized as girls and seen as girls, uh, and um, um, uh, there is um, let's see uh, there is a higher likelihood for girls with adrenogenital syndrome to be sexually attracted to. Uh, other women, uh, so um, so that um, more likely to be uh, lesbian in sexual orientation. That's not always the case, um, but it's more than uh, in the general population. Um, what this might reflect is that there is some uh, there are some changes in the person's brain in their early developing brain, even in that hypothalamus, as far as testosterone effects on the brain, and so that might be um, shifting some. Uh, 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 some of her sexual preferences and uh, characteristics to more of a male type brain, right? Um, but again, this is an intersex condition where there are some aspects of maleness, some aspects of fem femaleness. Uh, the next uh, of the um, forms of pseudohermaphroditism or hormonal uh, disorders of sexual uh, different um, development. DSDs, uh, is androgen insensitivity syndrome. Androgen insensitivity syndrome. Now, this is one where, um, where the person would be chromosomally male, so on chromosomal genotype, 
uh, you would see X and Y chromosomes, right? Clearly, X and Y chromosomes. And the person does have testicles, those, um, uh, those primitive gonads uh, differentiated into male-type testicles. However, they remained inside the body. Um, essentially, when they started producing testosterone from the testicles, um, though uh, that testosterone was released into the bloodstream, it circulated all through, but the body seemed to lack receptors for testosterone. And so even though a lot of the testosterone message was being sent, there was nothing to receive it. And so, um, so essentially then, uh, the rest, then many parts of the body, uh, essentially developed more female in the absence of that, um, uh, that testosterone, right? So, uh, what that means is that, um, people with androgen ins insensitivity syndrome are, um, are going to be strongly female in their external appearance. And almost always, I can't say always about anything, but almost always uh, in their gender identity, going to be female. Um, if you look at uh, the slide, uh, the picture on slide number 17, uh, there's a person with androgen sensitivity syndrome um, and uh, strongly female in appearance um, and uh, has probably always seen herself as female and thought of herself as a female and uh, seen uh, and other people responding to her as if she's a female, right? Uh, female gender identity, gender uh, expression, uh, all sorts of stuff like that. However, this is a person who internally, um, all those cells in her body that have all of her DNA, all those cells are going to have X and Y chromosomes, which would indicate that this person is male. She's also got internal testes, which are producing testosterone, right? Um, anatomically, uh, let's see, um, women with androgen insensitivity syndrome, uh, as I said, are going to appear strongly female. Um, they're, uh, they're typically, they're going to have a vagina. Uh, it's, um, it's going to be a uh, shortened vagina in a lot of cases, and there's no uterus. Um, so a short kind of dead end vagina. Um, uh, and no ovaries, of course, right? Because those um, uh, gonads developed into testes. Um, and so, um, so while she would be able to have penetrative sex with a man, um, uh, she would not be able to uh, get pregnant, uh, not be able to have children. Essentially, um, a lot of folks with androgen and sensitivity syndrome have no reason to think that there's anything unusual about their gender or sex development until the time of puberty. Because um, a girl with androgen and sensitivity syndrome, who has always thought of herself as a girl, and everybody always has probably, um, will not uh, will develop breasts, but she won't begin to menstruate uh, ever, um, and then she's liable to realize and under she's liable to undergo examination, and they may realize that um, uh, that she's had. Uh, um, internal testes all along and um and that there was no way to know that um this is um this is uh, actually coming up more uh than it used to in that um any kind of chromosome i'm sorry any kind of genetic uh testing is gonna show something about x and y chromosomes or x and x chromosomes and so um so there have been a lot of reports in the literature lately of even people who you know did some of those uh, mail away genetic tests like for um to find out your um 
your ancestry history uh, or even your risk for uh, medical diseases or mental illnesses or whatever. Those things, you know, are way overblown as far as what they are able to do. But what they can do is tell whether you've got X chromosomes or Y chromosomes or X and Y. And, um, and what I'm leading to is that um, uh, there have been um, cases of people who found out that they had surprising um, sex chromosomes when they sent away these tests to 23andMe or something and it came back that they were male, where they never knew that they were, were chromosomally or genetically male. Again, uh, though, uh, by uh, around the time of um, uh, puberty, uh, and usually by the time of age 16 or 17, if a person's not menstruating, they're going to think something's really wrong uh, and are usually um, uh, finding this out. Um, however, this is, a, this is a lot for a person to deal with, of course. Um, uh, and... Um, uh, especially um, infertility. Um, uh, uh, what I have on the next slide, uh, slide number 18, this is a picture that I lifted from Wikipedia. Um, and uh, this is a picture, a group shot of um, women with androgen insensitivity syndrome and related DSD conditions. So we don't know who in the picture has androgen insensitivity syndrome and who doesn't. Some people might have others. Uh, but, um, but I'm guessing that most of these uh, women have androgen insensitivity syndrome. Um, and, uh, and essentially, you notice a um, very female presentation uh, and appearance. Um, probably almost all of them, maybe, maybe all of them, identify as female um, uh, and um, uh, but have male internal structures. Uh, what I think is really amazing and beautiful about this picture is the name of the group. Um, uh, apparently the name of their group is Orchids, which, uh, which is very clever. Um, you see, orchids are flowers, um, but they're, and they're beautiful flowers, but they're named for their roots. The roots of orchids uh, are, look like male testicles. They look like testes. And orchi uh, is the group the Greek word uh, for testes? Uh, like if somebody has surgical removal of the testes, it would be an orchiectomy um, or something like that, right? So orchi refers to testes, and so these these women in this group call themselves or call their group orchids. Uh, they are beautiful flowers with testes deep down inside. I think that's just so clever and amazing, and um, I don't know. Anyway. Uh, I'm impressed with that. Uh, let's see the um, the last of the. Um, oops, I lost my place. The last of the conditions here for uh, pseudohermaphroditism uh, is one that doesn't come up a whole lot, um, but it's important because it tells us uh, some things about how. Um, sex hormones, particularly testosterone, uh, works in the body. Um, so our last example of um, pseudohermaphroditism or a hormonal condition here is DHT deficiency. Okay, DHT deficiency. Uh, DHT is, um, is a metabolite of testosterone. DHT is dihydroxy testosterone, I believe. Um, don't quote me on that, but I think that's what it is, dihydroxy dihydrotestosterone. Anyway, it's essentially a metabolite of testosterone. What I mean by that is that the body produces testosterone, and then over some time, testosterone is metabolized by the body. It's broken down. And one of, the, one of those immediate ingredients is DHT. DHT is actually more um, 
potent in its effect than testosterone. I believe it's like five times as potent as testosterone. Um, now, you may remember that when we first started talking about uh, sex hormones back in our chapter on hormone regulation, I mentioned to you that, um, that a lot of times people use the general term androgens for male sex hormones. And it's like, well, okay, well, there's testosterone, right? What else is there? Well, what else is there is DHT. DHT is another androgen. But since it's derived from testosterone, a lot of times people just sort of lump DHT and testosterone together. However, they do seem to have some slightly different effects on things. And, um, and some of the way that we learned this was, um, by, was from observation of a cohort of um, uh, boys who um, were discovered uh, living in the Dominican Republic. Um, uh, in a case that was published in around 1973 or 74 or something like that. Uh, and what they found is that um, these boys all uh, lacked an enzyme. Uh, they had an enzyme deficiency. Um, and this was an enzyme called 5-alpha reductase. And the job of 5-alpha reductase is to reduce uh, testosterone into DHT dihydrotestosterone. So these boys essentially were able to produce testosterone, but not its metabolite dihydrotestosterone. Now, um, this, um, this made for some, um, I don't know, interesting uh, uh, and kind of even hard to understand kind of symptoms, but uh, essentially um, uh, most of these folks were initially um, raised as girls. They weren't recognized as, um, uh, as having XY chromosomes, but they did. They were chromosomally boys. Um, <clears throat> Uh, however, because of that low level of dihydrotestosterone, DHT, a lot of their external features weren't masculinized, right? So the DHT seems to be part of what's making uh, the testes grow and making, um, you know, hair growth uh, on the face and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> uh, driving sex differentiation in the brain and in the penis. Uh, however, at puberty, um, a lot of these uh, girls then developed male secondary sex characteristics. Um, uh, they didn't seem to have testes before, but they had testes that descended, and so then it was obvious that they had testes, and so then they were thought of as boys. Uh, their clitoris then developed into a penis. Um, that, um, that penis uh, uh, was able to ejaculate. I'm sorry. There, uh, they were able to ejaculate, but usually not through the penis. The um, the urethra uh, tended to empty into either the base at the base of the penis or into the perineum. Uh, so, kind of like with um, uh, hypospadias, um, uh, a birth defect that we talked about. Um, uh, so um, that was more typical for them. Uh, what they also um, found is that um, this cohort of uh, people originally raised as girls, but uh, later saw themselves as boys. By the way, um, they they tended to see themselves as boys or men uh, following following puberty, and um, and there was a Spanish term for them, um, and I can't remember what it was, but essentially they were called um, they were called something that means boys at puberty, uh, that they became. Uh, that they sort of were seen as changing from girls to boys at the time of puberty. That's not exactly what happened, but that was how um, people sort of understood it and how they understood it, in a sense. Um, what they discovered, though, uh, in following this cohort of um, 
now men uh, with DHT deficiency is that they tended to have very small prostates um, and they tended to not have any risk at all of male pattern baldness. Uh, and so what that indicated is that when men who don't have DHT deficiency, eventually, essentially men who are able to produce DHT, um, that it's probably the DHT that's increasing prostate size and also leading to male pattern baldness. So what this led to was drugs to treat um, uh, overgrowth of the prostate, um, benign prostatic hypertrophy. Um, uh, some of those drugs um, essentially block conversion of testosterone to DHT. And so they prevent the testa the the prostate from overgrowing. Um, the, um, the, the exact same drug actually is also um, sold as a treatment for male pattern baldness. Um, I'm trying to look in my notes to see the names of these because I don't remember them. Um, but, um, but essentially, uh, it's blocking, oh, here it is, uh, but it's blocking the um, transition of testosterone to DHT so that a man who actually could pre produce DHT isn't producing DHT, or at least as much of it, and so uh, is less likely to get male pattern baldness. Um, now, male pattern baldness, to be clear, isn't all male baldness. What that refers to is when a man develops uh, baldness toward the back of his head, uh, on the crown of his head, not so much the receding hairline, but that seems to be related to testosterone levels, right? More testosterone, more likely chance of male pattern baldness. Anyway, um, let's see. Uh, the um, names for these, oh, the drug is uh, finasteride, uh, and... Um, uh, it's sold under two different names. Propecia is the name it's sold under for male pattern baldness, and Proscar is the name it's sold under for um, uh, BPH, uh, uh, prostatic hypertrophy, overgrowth, uh, enlarged prostate. Um, it's different dosages. Uh, Propecia um, uh, dosages are about one-fifth the size of Proscar dosages. Um, however, um, uh, since it's the same drug, uh, some men have um, uh, decided that they wanted the Propecia uh, for male pattern baldness and um, uh, just break those pills or something like that because um, uh, usually male pattern baldness isn't considered a uh, uh, a necessary condition for insurance to pay for treatment or something like that. Anyway, but it's exactly the same drug. It's in different kinds of dosages. So DHT deficiency then, uh, unusual kind of thing. There have been, by the way, this isn't the only um, uh, group that this has ever been found in. This is a uh, this does seem to be um, essentially genetically transmitted in that um, the, the genes that would um, tell the body to produce 5-alpha reductase are, um, uh, are not working in some way. So it has shown up, showed up in some other populations, but it is pretty rare. Uh, still, it, um, it is informative as far as what it can tell us about um, uh, hormonal influences on brain development and um, uh, development of uh, male and female structures. Okay, next we look at um, uh, what are generally now called intersex conditions. Um, uh, intersex conditions are where there is some ambiguity in the person's physical sex uh, as um, a male or female. Um, now, uh, 
got to talk about terminology here for a minute. Um, I'm pretty sure your textbook uh, was published at a time when the um, this was just a few years ago, but uh, when the um, the cool terms for the for this was not intersex. Um, the term intersex has been around for a long time, um, but for a while people thought that that sounded too um, harsh or clinical or in some way. Um, marginalizing, distancing in some way. And so people tried to adopt a different uh, uh, terminology here. And for a while, they tended to refer to this as DSDs, which originally meant disorders of sex development, disorders of sex development. However, even that disorders and sex of sex development sounds kind of harsh. Uh, and it doesn't sound very um warm and friendly. Uh, and so people changed what the DSD meant uh, to uh, differences of sex development or differences of sex differentiation or something like that, right? Um, and all of this was, you know, to try to get more comfortable kinds of uh, terminology here. It, effectively, it didn't seem to work very well, and people kind of reverted to and went back to using the term intersex. And it doesn't seem like people um, cringe at the term intersex anymore. Uh, people are using that um, much more freely, uh, and it doesn't seem to have some of the um, medical, clinical, negative connotation, I guess, that it, it seemed to use to. I'm not really sure why, but um, but so for now, the um, uh, the preferred term seems to be intersex conditions. Now, People talk about intersex conditions um, in the context of talking about gender and sexuality and stuff like that, but a lot of times people don't understand what this means. Uh, I've heard people who really should know better uh, talking about um, intersex conditions as being chromosomal conditions. Well, some of them are, but a lot of them aren't. A lot of intersex conditions, as we'll see, are purely hormonal, that there is no, that there are no... Um, uh, ambiguities uh, of the person's chromosomal sex, um, but that um, but that uh, some may be caused by hormonal kinds of influences. So what you'll see here in my slides is that there's a number of different kinds of conditions to talk about with regard to intersex conditions, um, and. Um, and I'd like to um, uh, remind you to please keep in mind a few things as we talk about this. One, certainly we want to know about uh, folks with intersex conditions to be able to understand them and what their experience is like and what they go through and how they see themselves. But we also want to look at um, what uh, an understanding of intersex conditions can tell us about how other people uh, develop um, their sense of their gender and their sex, right? Because as I've sort of alluded to already, some things with, you know, early, early exposure to hormones and maybe subtle masculinization or feminization of brain or structures uh, or genital structures or anything like that um, are going to play a role in some of this, right? So this can, um, that can help us, uh, I think, to understand um, sex and gender development in all people, not just people with intersex conditions. Now, um, the um, uh, one more thing in introduction before I get into specific um, intersex conditions is that uh, I mentioned already the diagnosis in the DSM diagnostic system of gender dysphoria. Uh, and we'll talk, which used to be called gender identity disorder, right? Um, and we'll talk about gender dysphoria a little bit later on in this chapter. But I want to point out to you now that um, that in previous ways that the diagnosis of gender dysphoria, 
of course, when it was called gender identity disorder, was defined, um, was that it specifically excluded anybody with an intersex condition. So if there was any possible known medical, physical reason why there might be some ambiguity of um, uh, sex presentation or gender or anything like that, then that person wouldn't get a diagnosis of gender identity disorder. What they were trying to capture in the diagnosis previously was purely Mm, well, purely mental, purely physiological uh, differences, where there's uh, where there's a psychological sense of one sex that of one gender that doesn't match with the physical sex. That's been changed dramatically in uh, in the DSM five, so that now the diagnosis of gender dysphoria includes the possibility of people with um, intersex conditions. Now. Don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that everybody with an intersex condition has uh, gender dysphoria. Many of them don't. In fact, most of them, uh, I don't know if I can say that, um, probably most of them don't. Uh, however, having an intersex condition doesn't necessarily preclude uh, having um, uh, gender dysphoria now like it used to. Uh, so that's going to change some things with regard to how common uh, gender dysphoria um, uh, is in populations when people give estimates of you know incidence and prevalence of things you know what percentage of the population has gender dysphoria or whatever um, and um, and that number is probably getting bigger because now all those a lot of people with intersex conditions uh, are now being subsumed into the diagnosis. By the way, one thing that I just mentioned is one thing that most people don't know, and that's that people with intersex conditions don't necessarily have gender dysphoria. Um, and so, uh, uh, so for folks who are looking at the incidence of gender dysphoria, they're often counting up all the people who have intersex conditions and putting them into that diagnosis, even though it doesn't apply. Uh, so when it comes to looking at how common gender dysphoria is currently in populations, Wow, it's hard to tell um, because people are getting things all confused uh, with regard to that. We'll come back to that idea later, but just to let you know uh, right now that folks with gen with intersex conditions now may or may not get a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Right. Um, so again, it's not necessarily uh, a part of it, or not necessarily an exclusion from it. Okay, um, so if we look at um, uh, some different kinds of intersex conditions, uh, or DSDs, um, uh, these can be either chromosomal or hormonal, meaning that the underlying cause of the intersex condition can be related to sex chromosomes, X and Y chromosomes, or it could be not related to chromosomes uh, and uh, could be related to um, uh, hormone levels, sex hormone levels, uh, whether in utero or shortly after birth or something like that, right? So we'll break them down that way. First off, looking at chromosomal causes and uh, then looking at hormonal. Okay, when I say chromosomal causes, um, <clears throat> notice that um, I'm not saying genetic causes. Uh, when you say something is genetic, uh, that implies to a lot of people that since the cause is in a person's genes, then that it's also heritable, meaning that it tends to run in family lines, or if your parents had it, you're more likely to have it. And that's generally what we mean when we say something is genetic or a genetic determination.
Um, while uh, chromosomal intersex conditions uh, do involve genes, they're not um, represented in the genes themselves as, uh, as something that is heritable. Essentially, and this is why they're, referred, they're more properly referred to as chromosomal, because what it comes right down to is that these, are the, these uh, chromosomal intersex conditions are the results of random non-disjunctions during meiosis. <laughs> okay, did you catch that? Random non-disjunctions during meiosis. So that, um, uh, as I mentioned before, during meiosis, uh, that is the production of sperm cells and the production of egg cells in mom and dad's bodies, um, uh, the end result is going to be germ cells that are normally each going to have one um, uh, sex chromosome, either an X chromosome or a Y chromosome. However, it's not terribly unusual for things to not happen just that way in meiosis, uh, that, um, that chromosomes don't always split, uh, and they may stick, in a sense, so that one sperm cell might end up having um, an X chromosome and a Y chromosome, uh, or one egg cell may have uh, two X chromosomes, or it may have no X chromosomes. It's possible. Um, it doesn't happen a whole lot, but that's possible. Notice that this would be more or less random events uh, that would happen as egg cells and sperm cells uh, are being produced in mom and dad's body. And so that's why I think it's correct to say that these are chromosomal events and not so much genetic, because they're not inherited, but they are related to genetics random events. So um, I think we've got uh, two examples here to talk about, uh, two of the most common uh, intersex conditions uh, that are chromosomal, um, Klinefelter syndrome and uh, Turner syndrome. Uh, Klinefelter syndrome, um, I flipped to slide 10, Klinefelter syndrome is um, where a person who uh, um, uh, phenotypically, that is by their presentation, um, presents as male, uh, usually sees themselves as male, um, but they have an extra sex chromosome. Uh, in folks with Klinefelter syndrome, well, let me say in men with Klinefelter syndrome, uh, they usually have XXY or even possible to have XXXY chromosomes. Notice that they do have a Y chromosome, <clears throat> so that at that time, uh, when there is production of testosterone, uh, at the seventh week, after, uh, seventh week of gestation, that there is going to be this production of testosterone, um, uh, and so there is going to be some masculinization of features. Most folks who are um, uh, born with Klinefelter syndrome are unambiguously male by presentation, by by uh, phenotype, by external presentation. Um, they may have small penises. They may have small uh, testicles. Uh, at puberty and beyond, um, they may have um, uh, some sort of general feminine characteristics, tend to have uh, uh, enlarged uh, hips, uh, more likely to have breast development than men without Klinefelter syndrome, um, uh, tend to have low sex desire, uh, low sex drive, and tend to be infertile. They're not necessarily always infertile, but they tend to be infertile. Um, uh, there's a body style that um, is sort of associated with Klinefelter syndrome, uh, and it's sort of shown in that picture there where um, where it's a, a male person who's carrying, who's kind of um, gangly arms, uh, but carrying a lot of weight towards his middle um, and his buttocks. Um, people can present with uh, different um, 
uh, severities in a sense of uh, Klinefelter syndrome so that in some men with Klinefelter syndrome, they can go through their whole life and not know that they have Klinefelter syndrome, that it may be relatively mild kind of uh, presentation of things, or it may be more, um, more noticeable, more marked uh, kinds of things. Um, uh, there's, um, there's a famous person who had Klinefelter syndrome, uh, who I don't know, I have mixed feelings about including her here, um, because she's not typical of folks with Klinefelter syndrome, but, um, it's, um, uh, it's a woman who is a model and, um, James Bond girl. Uh, her name is Carolyn Cossey. Uh, she was born, um, um, phenotypically male, uh, and raised as male, uh, and then, um, essentially transitioned surgically uh, to female. And so so that's not necessarily typical of people with Klinefelter syndrome. Most of them um, uh, are viewed by other people as male. Most of them see themselves as male. Uh, however, Caroline Cossey um, uh, um, transitioned to female. Um, and um, I'm not entirely sure that that link that I put there for Carolyn Cossey is still live. Um, but essentially, um, you know, she became very famous. She did modeling and, like I said, was in a James Bond movie as one of the um, uh, Bond girl uh, kind of things. Um, let's see, I believe she wrote a book, too, about her experiences. Um, the other chromosomal uh, intersex condition to mention to you is Turner syndrome. Uh, Turner syndrome um, is uh, would be seen in people who are phenotypically female, that is, they present as female, usually see themselves as female. Um, uh, essentially what it comes down to as far as chromosomes is they have an X chromosome, and nothing else. They don't have another chromosome to go with it. So that's usually written as XO. Now there really is no O chromosome uh, or X0. I don't know. It's, I think people would say XO. But, um, but essentially that's just a placeholder to show that there is no XX or XY. Um, essentially what that would mean is that um, uh, one of the um, uh, one of the sex cells that made her uh, didn't have a uh, sex chromosome in it at all. Um, and so, um, so she's got, uh, X chromosomes, but no one X chromosome, but no other chromosome. Now, um, uh, Turner syndrome, um, uh, people with Turner syndrome are almost always female, almost always see themselves as female, present as female. Uh, they do have some, um, some sort of, uh, differences in that, um, uh, uh, girls with Turner syndrome, um, let's see, tend to be short in stature, uh, and they tend to have webbed necks. I'm not sure if you can see in those pictures, um, but essentially that's the same little girl before and after surgery to, um, to fix that webbed neck. Um, uh, that's, you know, not, there's nothing terribly wrong with it. People just don't like the way it looks, it's, that it looks on them sometimes, and so they'll get it surgically fixed. Uh, but, um, but essentially, uh, that webbing coming down from the ears to the shoulders. Um, uh, girls with Turner syndrome tend to be short, I said that already. Uh, they tend to have kind of broad chests um, and uh, a low hairline. Um, and low set ears. So there are some kind of physical characteristics uh, that go with this um, uh, chromosomal uh, difference here. Um, girls with Turner syndrome uh, generally don't menstruate or develop breasts, um, uh, and they're generally infertile. Uh, so um, so sometimes a girl with Turner syndrome might not realize she has Turner syndrome until it's 
the time for her to uh, uh, start menstruating, so sometimes in puberty. Uh, a lot of times, though, Turner syndrome is identified in girls earlier um, because of the neck webbing. Um, and uh, let's see, um, girls with Turner syndrome tend to have um, uh, uh, enlarged clitoris um, that actually is sometimes confused for a penis um, in a baby, but um, but it's usually obvious that um, uh, that there are labia and that it's not a scrotum, um, and so uh, often identified with Turner syndrome, um, but um, but are infertile, right? Uh, which is a lot for some people to to handle, right? I'm never going to be able to have babies. Um, uh, Turner syndrome is also associated with um, with a learning disability that. Um, uh, that a lot of girls with Turner syndrome uh, have a nonverbal learning disorder, um, uh, mathematics disorder, more or less, uh, difficulty with uh, with math and spatial uh, relationships and things like that. There seems to be a high incidence in that in Turner syndrome. Um, but again, most uh, girls with Turner syndrome are recognized as female and almost always have female gender identity. So even though this is an intersex condition. Most girls with turn, most women with Turner syndrome wouldn't see themselves as having gender dysphoria or anything like that, right? Um, okay, uh, we'll move next to um, hormonal causes of intersex conditions, and I guess I'll do that in the next recording. Okay, the last thing to talk about with regard to intersex conditions is uh, are some things related to um, treatment for folks with intersex conditions. Um, I mentioned a few things along the way, uh, you know, with regard to when some different intersex conditions are even first recognized in people, um, and um, uh, and sometimes they require no treatment at all. Uh, sometimes. Um, uh, you know, it may require, it may involve some um, uh, genetic counseling. It may involve uh, some other kinds of adjustments in counseling with regard to uh, infertility or even self-image or things like that. But, you know, um, uh, not always. Um, if um, the... Uh, the typical uh, way of looking at treatment for folks with intersex conditions, um, you know, maybe 40, 50 years ago, up until 20 years ago or so, was that, um, was that it was thought that people had to be uh, essentially assigned a sex so that they could be raised as male or raised as female. And, um, and there was this belief that you had to do that fairly early um, and that parents and doctors could essentially assign a sex uh, to a baby, decide to raise that baby as a particular sex, um, and that, that everything would be okay. This was disastrous. Um, <clears throat> this was based on um, the uh, the ideas of a psychologist uh, named uh, Dr. John Money, I believe was his name. Anyway, um, his belief was that um, people are psychosexually neutral at birth, meaning that um, even though we have some differences in our physical structure, you know, we haven't developed anything as far as male or female gender, and so he thought that at that point we were still essentially bipotential as far as if we developed into male gender or female gender. Um, and so he thought that since that was the case, that, um, that it could be decided by somebody else, that they could decide to assign a particular gender uh, identity to a person and raise them that way and everything would be fine. Um, <clears throat> uh, we now know, of course, that this was a big mistake. 
Um, when you hear people say things like, uh, gender's not even a real thing, it's just a social construct or something like that, um, those people are wrong. <laughs> because, uh, and we know that, because, um, because if they were right, uh, then um, Jen, John Money would have been right, and that um, people are psychosexually neutral at birth, and that uh, could be raised according to either kind of social construct. Again, that was disastrous. Many people were assigned uh, a particular sex at birth uh, and didn't know that they had been assigned to that sex rather randomly or arbitrarily at birth, and ended up not identifying with that, with disastrous results in many cases, a lot of people dying by suicide. One particular case, uh, essentially, uh, of that um, is um, the case of David Reamer, uh, who there's a link there to a Wikipedia article about David. Um, David actually wasn't born with a um, with an intersex condition. Uh, he was a twin, um, but when he was being circumcised, uh, there was a mistake in the circumcision, and they actually ended up cutting off most of his penis by mistake in the circumcision. Um, but they believed that, well, um, we can't make him a new penis, uh, but they believed that they could uh, raise him as female since, again, at the time, people were believed to be psychosexually neutral, uh, sex was believed to be just a social construct, um, and um, so they raised him as if he were a girl. David didn't find this out until many years later, uh, many difficult years of, uh, of adjusting, um, and uh, ended up rejecting that, um, uh, that identification as a girl, uh, saw himself as male, um, ended up uh, suffering a lot because of it, and dying by suicide. Um, now, if gender really was just a, sec just a um, social construction, or if people really are psychosexually neutral at birth, then why would anything like that have ever happened, right? That, um, uh, that people, uh, uh, reject that. Um, uh, so there is something in people that is driving their gender identification and that it's not just something that's in their mind. It is something that's in their body a lot of times. Um, uh, when they did, uh, try to decide what sex they were going to give a baby, they often opted for female sex. Um, if there was any ambiguity at all, uh, for a few reasons. One is that, um, the uh, uh, female structures are largely internal, uh, and so it would be easier to um, uh, to make those structures surgically if there were any um, surgical adjustments that needed to be done, um, and um, and so we're more likely to uh, raise folks with intersex conditions as if they were female. Um, uh, but again, that caused a lot of problems. Um, nowadays, for folks with intersex conditions, um, uh, with the increased awareness of intersex conditions, uh, usually people are trying to defer uh, any kind of determination of sex or gender, or even you know how you respond to the child according to sex and gender until a bit later, uh, until the child can give some sort of um, uh, their own ideas, essentially, about um, how they feel and how they see themselves and stuff like that. And at that point, then looking at um, if there's um, if there's any kinds of uh, reassignment surgery or any kind of thing that would need to be done. But essentially, having you know deferring that until the child can participate in those kinds of discussions, at least, not that the child can make their decisions because they're still a child, uh, but um, but can participate in some of those uh, discussions. Um, <clears throat> Uh, that still leads to a lot of problems, um, you know, uh, as far as um, 
uh, raising a child essentially with ambiguous gender or without gender, at least for a while, um, is um, can be difficult in some ways. That uh, you know, folks, uh, uh, strangers are going to want to know, in a sense, if the person is a boy or a girl, or you know, all that sort of uh, gender expectation kind of stuff. And um, and when, while we know that some of that stuff is artificial and some of it's problematic and a lot of stuff, it's there. And um, and this is something that people run up against, you know, every day. And so that um, that's also a consideration uh, in making those kinds of decisions. Um, what, um, what I'm not talking about yet is, uh, is more, um, gender dysphoria in children. And so we'll have to talk about that next time. Um, there have been many more cases recently of, uh, people being identified as having gender dysphoria, even in early childhood, uh, and people undergoing treatments to, you know, delay the onset of puberty or even to transition early. And that's a much, that's a much different kind of thing. Right. And, uh, there's some real problems, uh, and controversies involved with that. Um, uh, people have very strong ideas on either side, uh, of that question, but we'll pick up that. Um, I guess that'll be next week because, uh, this is the last podcast I'm going to record on this chapter for this week. We'll pick up, uh, next week with a gender dysphoria and then look at, um, uh, uh, gender development, uh, what people go through at different, essentially ages or stages of life with regard to their understanding and expression and um, sense of their own gender. Okay, so we'll pick up with that ne- that next week. Okay, that's all. Be good.